You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. I know everyone listening to this podcast has heard of the United Way Worldwide. It is clearly the world's sort of go-to place to gather donations together from people far and wide to support favorite causes around the world. And I bet many of us have notions of the United Way that extend back to when we began working, particularly if you're of my generation, because you'll know that when you were going to work and when you signed up to work for a particular organization or company, someone would come around when you were signing your paperwork to get started with the company to ask you how much you wanted to contribute to the United Way. And through those workplace campaigns, we were able to generate billions of dollars, literally, to support causes national and local. Well, today the United Way does that, but it does a lot more. And we wanna talk with the new CEO, relatively new CEO of the United Way, about what's happening with United Way and its relationships with organizations around the globe. And uh, I am also really thrilled that this new CEO of the United Way is a friend and someone whose career I've followed at least now for the last 15 years. And it is Angela Williams. Angela, really great to have you on the show. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. And as I've just said, I've been so looking forward to having this opportunity to speak with you. Art, thanks so much for inviting me to join you. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and really appreciate all that you have been doing in the nonprofit sector for so many years. It's a pleasure now to have known you. I don't know. It has been at least 15 years. It feels like Uh, about 15 years. But more than a decade. And throughout my career, you've always given me great advice and shared your wisdom. So it's a pleasure to have this conversation. Well, Angela, you know, I like to talk about my guest a little bit before we get into their actual work, because I think it's so important for people to understand that leaders of organizations didn't just fall out of the sky. You know, they're, they've put in their time in different places. And many nonprofit leaders have an orientation that is maybe somewhat different than a lot of people because your first thought is, how can I help? What can I give back? How can I make a difference? And 
that sometimes drives us to be um, effective in nonprofit work and to ultimately become leaders of organizations. And I would know for sure that that's true with you. You've been with several groups um, uh, in the last 15 years, at least. I know you, uh, I think we met when you were the general counsel at the YMCA USA, and, and then you moved over to Easter Seals to become CEO of that organization, and now with United Way Worldwide. But let's go back before that. I know you didn't even start in the nonprofit sector. You are, you're a lawyer, you're you have a degree in divinity. Tell us about you and how you got so oriented to this. You know what, Art? I would actually take it back to the generation before me, and that's my parents. My dad was a Baptist pastor in Anderson, South Carolina, where I was born. My parents were very active in the civil rights movement. My dad was the head of the NAACP for the state of South Carolina. So in the 1960s, grew up in this era of advocacy and civil rights and standing up for equality. And my dad was one of the pastors that sent a letter to all the clergy, white, black, you name it, all denominations to say, we need to come together to integrate Anderson, South Carolina. Then my dad left Anderson and my parents agreed that he would go on active duty. So he became the fifth black chaplain in the history of the United States Navy. And then I grew up on military basis, but it has always been from the very beginning in my ethos and in my in my growing up hearing about advocacy, civil rights, giving voice to those that don't have a voice, activating, and, and of course, service to others, service in community. And that has been my, in my, it's in my DNA, it's who I am. And so regardless of whether I was working in the federal government or whether I was on active duty in the military or whether I was working in the corporate sector, there was always civil engagement that was part of who I was and my, I would say, extracurricular activity. And then when I discovered when, when I worked for President Bush and President Clinton on the Katrina Fund that there is actually a job that I could have, not just as a board member, but true in a volunteer, but truly working and living in this space day in and day out. It's been tremendous ever since. Wow. You said so many things that I want to now <laughs> dive into a little bit. So first of all, let's talk about this military service. What did you do in the military and how did you end up in, in military? Well, as I said, my dad was active duty military. So my uh, I grew up on military bases and I don't want to tell my age now, but maybe about five to 10 years ago, I would say that half my life was on military bases and, and around military communities. And so it was just this natural idea that oh, I want to serve my country too. And my brother, who's three years younger than me, also went on active duty. So I, at the University of Virginia, I was a four-year Air Force ROTC scholarship recipient, was commissioned upon graduation from UVA, applied my senior year in college to go to law school. And so the Air Force deferred me coming on active duty so I could go to the University of Texas Law School, came on active duty during the summers, doing work, uh, internship, then the Air Force said, all right, so you graduated from law school. We will give you so only one chance to take the bar exam. 
And if you pass, great, we'll consider bringing you on as an Air Force lawyer, which is called a Judge Advocate General. But if you fail the bar exam, you're just going to, we're sliding you into whatever position we decide to give you. So that was motivation for me to <laughs> hightail it out of Austin, Texas, drive my little red Nissan Sentra back to Alexandria, Virginia. I didn't even stay for my law school graduation. I was like, send me the uh, certificate, the diploma, because I have to start studying and pass this bar, which I did with the Virginia bar. Fantastic. So you, you were a judge, you were a JAG and, and yep. did that for, for some time, I guess. And, yeah, six and a half you know, years I was on active duty. What a fascinating way to give back to your country as a judge advocate, you know. And, and as you say, um, you have also, have, you have this orientation to advocacy anyway. And now here you are um, at United Way. So, but in between that, you did some other things too, right? So you you served at that time as a lawyer. And when you left the military, where did you end up? I left the military to become an assistant United States attorney. And I was in the Middle District of Florida, which covers Tampa, Orlando, and Jacksonville. And then in the summer of 1996, there were a number of black churches burning across the country. It was arson. And at that time, Janet Reno was the attorney general. And Val Patrick was at Treasury. President Clinton was the president. And so they put together a task force with Treasury Department and the Justice Department to put together a task force of ATF agents, FBI agents, and a handful of federal prosecutors to form the National Church Arson Task Force to really dig in to see what was going on across the country with this rash of, of arsons of black churches. So I came up to the DOJ Civil Rights Division, worked on the task force for a couple of years, and then it was time for me to say, okay, what's next? Where do I go? Do I go back to the Middle District of Florida and continue doing the wonderful work I enjoyed doing as a federal prosecutor? Or what? Long story short, I ended up in Senator Kennedy's office working on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was the special counsel on criminal law. So I was on detail from the Justice Department to Senator Kennedy's office for a couple of years. Really enjoyed that work, really fulfilling. And I will tell everyone if it's interesting when you actually work in the Senate or just work in Congress in general and you see how legislation is made and you see the behind the scenes stuff and it's like looking at how sausage is made it's like wow so this is how it works but i think it's a uh, great it takes me back to my days of as a kid watching schoolhouse rock like this is how a bill uh and there's a whole song and so i got to live that and see it and understand it and it was invaluable oh that was wonderful so from government now you segue into nonprofit work? How did, what was the gap between those two things? Well, I did a stint at a law firm for three okay, years. You did work in a law firm. Okay. Yes. And then worked at Sears, moved from Washington, D.C. Ah, to Chicago okay. to be the chief okay. compliance and ethics officer at Sears. And from Sears went to the Bush Clinton Katrina Fund. Got it. And was the interfaith liaison where I was able to disperse about $25, 26000000000 billion from the fund to uh, rebuild houses of worship that were affected by Hurricane Katrina. After I was completing that work where I said, okay, now what? 
what do I want, really want to do? Who do I want to be when I grow up? How do I want it to serve? And it's, it's funny because at that time when I was completing my work uh, with the President's Foundation, I had received a call from Goldman Sachs to say, why don't you fly up to New York and talk to us and let's see if there's a match with your skills and background and experience. And at the same time, I was talking to Arnie Duncan, who at that time, uh, prior to becoming Secretary of Education under the Obama administration, was the head of uh, Chicago Public Schools. And then at the same time, I received a call from the YMCA of the USA saying they had a general counsel slot open. It was great having all these different conversations, great conversations, seeing how could I really fulfill my passion, be fulfilled in with purpose in the work that I did. And long story short, I ended up at the YMCA of the USA and I worked at the Y for just over 11 years. Yeah. Wow. What a career you've had. And you still are in many ways just getting started, which we'll hear about in just a bit. But to our listeners, particularly our young listeners, you can just see how life just has its twists and turns. And we have someone here who's worked in all three sectors. You've worked in government, business, and the nonprofit sector. There's not an experience really in any of these sectors that would be particularly foreign to you or even in any way frightening. And so there you are, you know, here you are now leading one of the largest, if not the largest philanthropic uh, organization, legacy philanthropic organization in the country now and in the world, maybe. I, I, I just know you're ready for it. And I guess the board of United Way knew the same. And so how are things going now for you and for the United Way? And I should say for us, given that we depend on you all so much. I am so thrilled to be here with the United Way Worldwide Network, a family of staff and volunteers that really care about what's going on in their local communities. I will tell you, Art, that when I applied for the position, I had somewhat of an understanding of United Way. And like you, growing up in my early career, I signed up to give to the United Way out of my, through payroll deduction. And in the military, we gave through what's called the combined federal campaign. So I, I just remember those days of looking at the United Way booklet to see all the various charities that United Way supports. And those relationships, what I have found now that I'm actually here, are still with us and they are incredible. What I appreciate about United Way is that we have more than 45,000 uh, corporate partners. And then we have thousands and thousands of partnerships with fellow nonprofit agencies around the world. We are a global network, but we're hyper-locally focused. And what I appreciate is that we are a trusted advisor because we have so many of these relationships and we have the ability also with government, for example, to, to bring people together to the table. We were just on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago for advocacy days and it was amazing to see congressperson after congressperson, whether it's from the House of Representatives or senators coming to say how much they appreciate 
united way. It was it was not just Republicans. It wasn't just Democrats. It wasn't just independents. Everybody said, we appreciate working with you. And United Way, our local United Ways are offering services and in communities in 95 percent of the United States. Yeah, that's a lot of coverage. It is. And as I said, we, we really depend on you all. And so one of the questions I have to ask you is, you and I started out years ago giving our money to United Way, you combined federal campaign. And we had a sense of what that organization was. How has it changed since that time? What is it today? What's interesting is that, and this goes to your earlier question about where are we and where are we headed? As you said, workplace giving campaigns were the way in which we were introduced to United Way. And it was one of the signature ways of working. And over the years, that has changed. And when you look at the multiple generations that are alive today, you look at uh, other external factors such as technology and ways in which people choose to donate and to engage civically. They don't necessarily look to a third party to do that. We can, from those devices called cell phones, through apps such as Facebook, LinkedIn, we can on our own or other platforms such as Go, GoFundMe, we can give directly to entities. We can create our own momentum. And so what that does for United Way is to say, as we adapt with external factors, how do we continue to remain relevant? Because I am here to tell you that it was reinforced during COVID how relevant United Way is in local communities. Our responsibility is to find ways to connect to the younger generations and to meet them where they are. And so that's some of the work that we're really starting to embark on. I'm nine months into the job, but we've already started having those conversations. And and it's incumbent upon us as a legacy organization that's 135 years old to remain relevant because there is need for United Way even now. Absolutely. Are there any early signs of where the organization is headed or where giving to United Way agencies might be headed? Well, what I appreciate, and this this predates my joining United Way, but several years ago, our local United Ways took a look at, one, how they were raising funds, the, the source of funds, whether it's primarily workplace giving or other sources, but they also looked at who do we, they asked the question, who do we want to be and how do we want to show up in community? And so a number of our local United Ways are, are looking at collective impact and saying, we want to measure how we, our partners and ourselves, are moving the needle on critical issues in communities. Secondly, uh, some of our local United Ways are actually providing programs and delivering on services. And then another thing that we will see with certain United Ways, they're focusing on like one major critical issue in their community, and that could be homelessness. And especially our local United Ways in California have banded together to to focus on this issue. So we are seeing a, a hybrid approach to how we're showing up in communities, how we're interacting. I will give you one quick example. I was in the Research Triangle area just last week, Raleigh-Durham, 
Our United Way there is facilitating conversations on race and doing so with a huge community of, of individuals and really talking about racial equity and doing so in a way that brings everybody to the table and coming up with solutions. I met with a group of elders in the African-American community called Haiti, but they talked about the broken promises from decades ago when the city decided to put Highway 147 right through the Black community. And at that time, it was known as Black Wall Street and the impact that had on generations until now, 2022. Well, you know, again, we think of the United Way as this one corporate entity, but it's actually a network of lots of medium-sized, large, and small entities as well that extend around the world. Sometimes I would imagine that structure can be a bit challenging to lead because you have to really exercise a lot of influence. And what I know from you is you have that, that ability. How do you feel you're being received as you go around the country visiting with different groups nowadays? I don't know what my track record is, but this is my fourth federated organization. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. it does take, it's an art and a science to being a part of a federated organization, meaning that you may have the, the, in my case, the United Way Worldwide Office, but we have 1,100 local United Ways operating in 37 countries. So what that means is that we have to work together, and that's about listening, having conversations. When I first started the job, I set out to have Zoom conversations initially, but now I'm actually getting on planes, trains, and automobiles and going out to meet people face-to-face -face and learning about their experiences in community, asking the question, what can I do from my vantage point to help and serve you to be even more effective in your local community? So that's what I think is the asset or the benefit of being in a federated structure where you have someone like me that can focus on um, things like what's happening in the, the realm of philanthropic giving, what's changing, what are we seeing with respect to trends of individual donors, what's happening within the sector, what are corporations doing when it comes to CSR and ESG, what role or how do we marry that up with what we're doing in our sector, how can we forge relationships and achieve common outcomes and and having those conversations, being a thought leader, lifting up the brand, uh, talking about who we are and making sure that we're meeting donors in, in multi-generational and in multi-faceted ways. So I think that my colleagues have received me well. We've had great conversations. They have told me what they like and what they don't like. And I appreciate that because at the end of the day, I'm here to serve. My colleagues on my staff are here to serve and make sure that we are our most effective in local communities. Well, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked a lot about trust and generosity and I guess the two things sort of go hand in hand. And for a large organization that is as distributed as United Way, we have to always make sure that it's maintaining its trustworthiness and that donors can feel comfortable that their donations are going to be good, put to good use. 
how do you see accountability and trustworthiness? And from your perspective, where does that rank in terms of the United Way's focus? I think that's incredibly important. And you, you've said it. How do we make sure that we are great stewards of the funds that people, not only the, the funds, but the time, the volunteerism people are giving to us, United Way worldwide. And I want to say, I like to use the phrase trusted advisor because it's about how are we being transparent? How are we showing up uh, in community? How are we going back to our donors, whether they are giving in, in time or talent, to say, this is how we're using your funds. This is how we are engaging in community. That's the role of nonprofits, and we do take that very seriously. Now, do you hear where sometimes a nonprofit falls down and falls short? Of course, because we're made up of human beings. And so we are, none of us are perfect. We, we have our faults. But what I want to say is that on the whole, when you take a nonprofit like United Way Worldwide, we really do strive to do our best. We want to be our best selves. We want to show up in community because we don't have time to not do our best. People need us right now. In, and, and we see from having continuing to go through the COVID pandemic, but now this economic pandemic, we have to be there. We have to be good stewards. And I would just say, Art, what I appreciate is philanthropists like Mackenzie Scott, who does her due diligence before she invests in nonprofits. And and then when you read her publications, when she announces that she's made large donations and significant donations to nonprofits, and she talks about the leaders and, and she says, I've done my work, my homework, and I'm here to say that these are the organizations and the leaders that you should invest in. That says a lot. And I would hope that as we see people thinking about who should I give to, which organizations should I invest in, that uh, take a look at Mackenzie Scott's list, because she's led the way in, I think, disruptive philanthropy. And but she's also led the way in saying, I do my research and I do my homework. Well, I know you've been part of two organizations that have been beneficiaries of, of her uh, philanthropy. I wonder if that says more about you than your organizations, but <laughs> I think it's both. Well, leadership is important, really important. So, well, let me ask you this. If we were to think about United Way, let's say 10 years from now, given what we're seeing in the environment with declining numbers of individuals making donations to organizations. And you know, you and I are studying this whole question of generosity with this group called the Generosity Commission. But it is a fact that people, less people are giving money to organizations. That doesn't mean that there's less money going to organizations because you do find people like McKinsey Scott, who have billions, are giving more, which is great. So organizations are receiving donations at a higher level than, than ever, but the number of people participating has gone down. Do you see any change in that in the future? And do you believe it's important for us to not only 
increase the donations because that's key to what an organization can do. Without money, we can't do very much. But also get people at the lower end of the giving spectrum giving as well. So Art, I know you're familiar with the, the same studies I am. And I, I think that what we know is that people tend to give when they feel connected to the community. Mm-hmm. Also, people give when they feel as if they are making a difference or can make a difference. Or when you think about young people who are motivated and inspired to want to to do something to give back, that's how we began to cultivate philanthropists. And philanthropy, in my mind, is the person that gives five cents at, all the way up to the person that may want to give five billion. And one of the things that we have been talking about at, at the United Way is how do we begin to work with those young philanthropists? During COVID, you saw kids that wanted to pack boxes of food or raise funds to help families in need, families that couldn't travel or get food. So that's one way. And then on the spectrum, we had a wonderful partnership with DoorDash and Lyft so that Lyft provided rides. Uh, We had uh, Ride United and then DoorDash was providing food from food banks and connecting the food to individuals in need. That's the spectrum. But what I also see is how do we to reach out to high school students, college students to say, would you like to volunteer? United Way, we have all of these partner organizations or agencies that we work with that we can connect you to. We have a day of giving. And so that's how I believe you really begin to connect to people is to give them ways in which to become engaged in their local communities, give them a platform from which they can launch their own movements. Kids are concerned about their environment. How can we give them a platform for that? Kids are concerned about other other things. Or we have students that want to think about going to college or how do we bring along our, our classmates that don't have the same opportunity. So that's who we want to be. That's how we want to show up. We also want to start thinking about not just 10 years from now, but 30 years from now. And I learned that from you, Art. You invited me years ago to one of your board meeting sessions where you were doing a strategic plan and you brought in this third party to think about the future. I have since then been working with that organization to think about the future, to figure out how do we pay attention to signals and how do we make sure that operationally that we position ourselves to be relevant, impactful, and sustainable 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Well, I'm so glad you had a ch- got that benefit from that session. You're talking about the Institute for the Future yes. and uh, Bob Johansson, hopefully, um, is the gentleman That's, you're yes. working with. We've had Bob on our podcast. I hope listeners might want to check out the episode I did with Bob. Tremendous foresight practitioner, has written probably 12 books on things we should be thinking about when it comes to the future. And nonprofit organizations can really benefit from that insight. So I'm really happy. I'm thrilled, actually, that we're thinking that way. And, you know, that kind of segues into this conversation about collaboration. You know, collaboration is hard. It's something that I believe nonprofits can really benefit from. 
but it's really hard because, you know, we all have our programs and we think we have the right answer today for what we should be doing. And when it comes to collaborating, we don't want to stop doing what we're doing just so that we can partner with someone else. And, and then it's a matter who gets credit and it's, it's difficult, but what makes it easier is when we cannot think about today and we can think about building tomorrow together build things that don't presently exist. And so when you combine a collaborative spirit with thinking about the future, now you can have real partnerships that can develop over time where people are allowed to get trust. And so I'm really happy, first of all, knowing that you are a collaborator. And secondly, that your focus is really down the road because that's also going to give you a sense of what you should be doing today, right? If we think about 10, 20 years, 30 years down the road, what, did, what are we going to look like? It gives you some signals for what you should be doing today. So I'm, I'm thrilled and not surprised, but just thrilled <laughs> because that's, that's who you are and what a great catch you are for United Way. So let me ask you then, 30 years from now, maybe, you know, you'll probably still be on the scene, but I don't plan to be here you know, much, maybe I might be at 30 years. Depends on what I want to see my grandchildren do. But, <laughs> but if I am here, I want to be able to look back and say, this organization, this organization that you currently lead today is making a tremendous difference in the lives of millions of people, maybe even hundreds of millions of people around the world. What's your sense, Angela? And I know I, I can't hold you to this, but what's your sense really for how it will be doing that? How will United Way be making a difference in the lives of millions and maybe even hundreds of millions of people 30 years from now? My hope is that, one, we can 30 years from now say that because of United Way, communities are more resilient. Second, my hope is that 30 years from now, people can say that United Way showed everyone how to show up in communities as partners and not saviors. Third, my hope is that because of the role of being a convener, collaborator, catalyst, that United Way will have moved the needle on a particularly pressing issue within a community and everyone, including the community itself, that their voices were elevated and the solutions came from them in partnership. I will tell you, Art, one of the things that I have said to a number of our global corporate partners is that all of you have your own CSRs, ESGs, and want to invest in the communities in which you operate. Think about this for one second. If we were to identify one or two communities where we have a number of corporations and you all decide we're going to set aside our own independent agendas, but decide to focus on that one pressing need in the community in which a number of us are, galvanize our resources, people, product solutions, you name it, finances, and work with partners like United Way and other nonprofits that we could intentionally make a market difference that has impact for generations to come. I believe that we can do that. 
I believe that where there is a will, there's a way. I just think that we have to make that collective decision that now is the time, whether it's government, corporations, nonprofits, et cetera, that we're going to come together and start solving for these critical needs that people are facing today. Fantastic. So I, I have one last question for you as we get to the end of this. And it's really around, you know, what we need to do to reach that young girl now who's maybe in sixth, seventh grade. She doesn't necessarily know what she wants to be when she grows up. But what do we need to do? And how would you advise her and those around her when it comes to the importance of spending some of your life trying to make a difference? If we had to make a case to those young people today for working at least some part of their lives in social good, what do we say? What do we say to them, Angela? I think it's about two things. One, casting vision, and then secondly, exposing them. I would say this to the sixth grader, to the seventh grader, what do you want to do to make life better for yourself and for your classmates? And take them on a journey in community and have them go through that journey through various youth engaging programs where they get to earn badges or they get to volunteer or then those that are just in schools where they get to plant a community garden and see the fruit of their hands, the work of their hands benefit the community. So it's actually with children, it's not as much saying as it is doing and demonstrating. We have to show. And so folk like me who are in the fourth quarter now, what should we be doing? You know, how should we be modeling that behavior or what should we be doing that will make a difference and maybe influence others? I think that, uh, and, and this is something that I've always done, and that is mentoring and spending time with young people, uh, being in community, being present, um, making yourself available to talk to them or cast vision. I want to share a quick story with you. Um, my husband works in, um, in uh, downtown Chicago in um, some projects and uh, where everyone uh, is low income. You have children that um, are not reading at grade level. They are living in multi-generational homes, um, et cetera, et cetera. So one day um, he was, uh, Facilitate, facilitating a meeting along with uh, parents and other individuals in that community. And one of the, my husband said, well, you know, my wife's a CEO. And one of the girls said, I'm going to be a CEO when I, when I grow up, you a CEO. And then all the uh, number of the kids ran to be, and she said, well, I'm going to be a CEO. And I said, you can be a CEO. And then some of the other kids started raising their hands and said, well, I want to be a CEO too. And she said, no, you ain't, because you didn't say anything. I'm going to be the CEO. I said, well, you all can be a CEO. But it's just that that notion that when you cast vision, when you are there in person 
and um, you just provide that hope and give them a visual, that encourages young people to know that they can succeed. And it doesn't really matter what socioeconomic um, status is for, for young people. All of them need to have someone around them or people around them that can say, here's what you can be. And then to just say, I want to encourage you to dream. And whatever I can do to walk alongside you to make your dream a reality, I'll be there to do that. That's wonderful. Well, listen, you've been listening to Angela Williams, who is the nine-month-in CEO of United Way Worldwide. And what a terrific ambassador for philanthropy you are. And you're going to be a remarkable leader, I know, for the United Way system, which also is going to deliver great benefits to all of us around the world. And um, I just want to say thank you, Angela, for doing this. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. And you know, call me if you need me. I'll I'll stand up and do anything I can to make sure you're successful because that's just um, how much I believe in you and just know that uh, you're going to be an outstanding leader as you have been in all the other places where you've stopped. Well, thank you, Art. It has been such a pleasure and I really do appreciate you. Um, and you are a person that models the mentorship the encouragement, the empowerment, um, and and that's who you are. You've shared that with me, and you've done that with so many other leaders, and I appreciate you doing that. So thank you, and um, I appreciate this opportunity to, to share about this wonderful organization called United Way Worldwide. Great. Well, to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. As you know, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And there are a number of other episodes that I'm sure you'll find fascinating and interesting and probably inspiring. We'll see you all next week. If you want to support the Heart of Giving podcast, by the way, you can do so by going to give.org and making a donation, and we will certainly appreciate it. Take care. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.